Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome, and this is Cindy Meyer, and this is the weekly Spirit Seeker Hour brought to you by Spirit Seeker Magazine. Spirit Seeker has been on the front lines of the mind-body-spirit movement for over 22 years. Um, We started as a quarterly newsletter, then went to a um, a six-time-a-year publication, and then in 2002 we went to monthly, and we have been read online since 1998, and we have a print magazine um, in the Midwest and uh, parts of Florida. So you can find us at conferences all throughout the United States, but the main cities where you can you know, pick them up all the time is Chicago, St. Louis, um, and the West Palm Beach area of Florida. So we want to thank you for being our readers. We want to thank the advertisers for supporting and making the magazine possible. We also want to uh, invite you to join our email newsletter because um, we let you know who the guests are on the radio show, when the magazine is online, and we also let you know about wonderful um, happenings um, for the Mind, Body, Spirit throughout the U.S. and into Canada. So um, all you have to do is either go to spiritseeker.com and fill out the um, the contact form for the email newsletter, or you can send us an email to info, I-N-F-O, at spiritseeker.com, and we will add you to our list. We do not sell our list, so it's sacrosanct, and we do give away books and DVDs and CDs and tickets to events, so it's well worth um, you know, being, uh, being part of our email subscriber list. Okay, so that's it for announcements. Um, I am delighted uh, to bring uh, this interview to tonight. I will be interviewing Brian uh, Wilson, who um, uh, is a professor of American religious history in the Department of Comparative Religion at Western Michigan University. He is the author of Dr. John Harvey Kellogg and the Religion of Biologic Living in Yankees um, in Michigan. He has written um, the biography on John E. Fetzer and the Quest for the New Age. Um, and John Fetzer is is known for many hats. He was a radio uh, pioneer. He's a media mogul and um, he, and he was also the owners of the Detroit Tigers. He fostered the marriage of science and spirituality and business and spirituality way before anyone even talked about what that meant. Um, he's, he was a pioneer on many, many fronts. He modeled the blending um, of business and spirituality, and he said that that is what he felt was a potent pathway to success. His legacy organizations continu- continue to carry on his work and um you know, this book is a is a testimony to really who this man um, was and and still continues to be with his presence um, influencing all of us still. The world knew him as a radio, TV, and cable mogul and, um, as I mentioned, the owner of the Detroit Tigers. But um, I'm not going to say anything more. I'm going to go ahead and uh, bring John uh, – I'm sorry, bring um, Brian Wilson, the author of the book John E. Fetzer and the Quest for the New Age, um, onto the air. So, Brian, are you there? I'm there. I'm here. Okay. <laughs> Good to <Okay>. be here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And thank you so much for being my guest, and thank you for bringing this man's wonderful legacy to all of us. Um, what an honor this had to have been to write this book. Oh, it, it it really was, and it was just a lot of fun. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, the Fetzer Institute uh, uh, came across my uh, previous book, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg and the Religion of Biologic Living, and they liked the way I handled the subject, and so they have an ongoing legacy program at the Fetzer Institute, um, and part of that is they asked me to uh, write a spiritual biography of John Fetzer. So doesn't fig, uh, um, focus specifically on his business or his baseball, but it really focuses on his development, his his spiritual quest. Well, and what an interesting journey. So I'm. you can just start wherever, anything you want to share, and I will interject occasionally and ask a question. Um, but okay. but who who is John Fetzer? I mean, how... I mean, he's cha- he changed a lot throughout the years. So you start wherever you want to start as a little boy or wherever you want to start with his history. Sure. Uh, might as well start at the beginning. Uh, he was uh, born in 1901 in a small town in Indiana, and uh, he had a very kind of typical Midwestern childhood. Um, his, 
he was raised by a, a single mother because his father passed away very early. Um, but one of the kind of formative things that happened to him as a kid was uh, he had a brother-in-law, a guy named Fred Ribble, who was a telegrapher for the railroad. And so he taught John Morse code, and together they got very interested in building a little crystal set, uh, a little primitive radio. And that's what got John Fetzer really interested in radio. And this is back in the 19-teens. And so that wow. launched his career uh, as, a, as a, a radio um, engineer and as a radio executive and administrator. And it's from that he built his, his media empire. Um, one of the other interesting things about John Fetzer is that uh, he was um, – he was uh, born and raised Christian. He was, he was baptized a Methodist. But when he was in his teens, his mother uh, um, uh, converted to Seventh-day Adventism, which is an apocalyptic group uh, that, uh, based in Michigan, it's now an international tradition. And so he became an Adventist himself and uh, basically stayed in the church for uh, a, a fairly long time. But by the time he was in his, his 20s, uh, he was kind of chafing at the restrictions, the kind of limitations uh, of this tradition. And so he broke with it and uh, basically uh, uh, from there went off and explored just a wide variety of metaphysical movements that um, formed the basis of his worldview. He was so ahead of his game. I mean, when yeah. I look at some of the things that he was drawn to, I mean, Freemasonry, I mean, that's not, I mean, you have to kind of be drawn to that. And, um, I mean, a lot of the original founders of our country were drawn to Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that was, uh, part of what he was really interested in was that he always felt that the United States had a kind of, um, uh, important role to play in kind of global transformation. And that's an idea I think he picked up originally from Freemasonry. And that, of course, goes all the way back to um, some of the founding fathers were Freemasons. So there's this idea that there is a kind of special mission or destiny to the United States. And so that's something that John Fetzer kind of assimilated and became part of his DNA. Um, and so it's not surprising that eventually he would come across the, the Freemasons and uh, become a member and he was quite active. Um, he joined in the 1930s, and in 1969 he was awarded the 33rd degree of the Scottish Rite Masons, which is about the highest you can get. So he was very involved in this tradition and very interested in the ritual aspects, but also the esoteric aspects of Freemasonry. Oh, I know. There's such symbolism, and um, I mean, even in some of the airports, we have some of the Freemasonry symbols and. You know, people don't even realize what they're looking at, <laughs> but it's mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very deep, and it's you know yeah. it's symbolism, you know, and also, you know, to understand the um, the meaning of the symbols, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, mm-hmm. But he was also drawn to theosophy, and you know, yes. we have a uh, there are theosophical societies all still throughout the world, and um, so I mean, he was right there with the front runners, you know. I mean, anything you want to share about that? I mean. Theosophy, a lot of people really still don't understand it. Well, um, yeah, actually, um, we'll start a step before that, because um, after he left the Seventh-day Adventist Church, um, one of the first things he did was he headed, he was at that time uh, living in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and he headed down to uh, Camp Chesterfield, which is a spiritualist camp uh, in Indiana, and it's one of the three major spiritualist camps that still survives today. It's still a, a thriving institution. And I have really been there. there. <laughs> oh, have you been there? I have been there, yeah. I mean, it's Fantastic. Lilydale and um, and there, and I forget the other one, but Camp Chesterfield. Casadaga. I mean, right. They, what is the other one? Uh, Casadaga, Florida. Okay, all right. Yeah. But, you know, if you've never been to Camp Chesterfield, I mean, to describe it, the fact that he felt drawn to go there, it's this, you drive through the gates, and it's spiritualists all over. And, you know, they, they read by billets. 
um, yep. you know, which, which, I mean, you talk, you talk. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. But Camp Chesterfield and Lilydale, and I haven't been to the one uh, in Florida, but they're all major. Like they're, they're, they've been around for a long, long, long time. So he was drawn probably right at the beginning. Well, um, that uh, uh, that camp had actually begun in the late 19th century, so it had been around for, he probably first went in 1934, so it had been around 30 or 40 years, and it was very well established. And the fun thing about Camp Chesterfield is that it's always been a kind of clearinghouse um, for all sorts of uh, kind of metaphysical and esoteric beliefs and practices. And so John Fetzer was drawn by the mediums and was absolutely fascinated by seances and um, the idea that you could actually communicate with the spirits of the dead and especially your your departed relatives. Um, But he also encountered psychic healers down there and people who did all sorts of different forms of divination. Uh, He was interested in astrology and tarot cards and the Ouija board and all sorts of different things. And it was really Camp Chesterfield where he first encountered this stuff. It's very sweet on that campus. Um, I visited after my um, my brother had crossed over, and, you know, it was very comforting to me. I mean, you, you actually, there's houses. People live in the houses, and they have their um, their appointment books on the front porch. So you just go, and you um, sign in when you would like a reading, and, you know, they have classes and, as I said, the public reading of the billets. But, but really, they're, they're all tested. You know, they, you know, to be there at Camp Chesterfield, you have to really, you know, you've proven your worth, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, it just was very comforting to me because my brother came through with three different people, and, and it just brought me great peace. You know, and I'm a medium myself, but, you know, you can't read yourself. It's kind of hard. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think so, John Chesterfield. I found a great deal of comfort down there, too, um, especially since his father passed away at such an early age. And this was a way he could actually connect and communicate with him. Mm-hmm. That's that's yeah. wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. Um, he also was drawn to UFOlogy. Mm-hmm. Um, during the 1950s, uh, he got really fascinated with UFOs. And... Um, this actually stems from an experience he had when uh, he was a, an assistant radio censor, which was a national position that he was given by FDR during World War II. And he heard reports of Foo Fighters, of, of mysterious objects uh, basically um, following Allied planes in Europe. And so that was happening in 44 and 45. And then, of course, the big uh, UFO incident occurred in 1947. And then in the 50s, more and more people claimed to have contact with um, space aliens and UFOs. And so he was fascinated by the literature. He was fascinated by the contactees. Uh, He was intrigued by the possibilities of of, new technologies. He always remained an engineer, so he he was fascinated by the possibilities there. And another thing about the UFOs, and this connects back to um, um, we were talking earlier about theosophy. Um, one of the traditions that uh, John Fetzer encountered at Camp Chesterfield was theosophy, um, which is a 19th century tradition that really blends Western es- esotericism with Hinduism and Buddhism, so Eastern and Western elements. And it became a very popular tradition um, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And a number of different theosophical groups basically broke off the main branch and uh, uh, established themselves in the United States. So one of the things that John Fetzer did at uh, um, Camp Chesterfield was they had a a bookstore, and he said every time he went down there, he just bought armloads of books. And a lot of these books were theosophy books. And so he became fascinated by some of the elements of theosophy. And as it turns out, a lot of the early UFO contactees came out of a theosophical background. So there's also a theosophical connection to his interest in UFOs. Well, and you know, we there was a there was a government agreement um worldwide government agreement to not talk about some of the UFO things that were happening because I I think they thought I don't you know you you wonder were they afraid that mm-hmm. you know, uh we might be afraid or but in most cases, you know, 
it's my understanding. And Dolores Cannon, I don't know if you've ever heard of her. Um, she's no longer on the Earth plane, but she was she was one of the first people who she was on almost every UFO investigation with the government and. Um, she said that they were here, they, they have always been here to help us, you know, and that we really should not be afraid. And apparently France is the first one who broke the agreement and said, we're tired of keeping this under wraps. So more and more people are talking about it. But it doesn't surprise me that the um, the theosophists were, like, right there with that, with that communication from the UFOs, because, you know, it's a higher intelligence. They're here to help us, is, my, is, is how I feel. Well, I, a couple of key things that theosophists believe in are, are um, that there are ascended masters out there that uh, uh, if we can contact them will help us in our, our spiritual transformation. And so that fits very well into the UFO contacting movement. And there's also this idea that um, human beings are basically evolving into higher levels of consciousness and that collectively the globe is also um, evolving into higher levels of consciousness. And so these were also ideas that were prevalent in the early contactee movement in the 50s and 60s. So there are these interesting kinds of connections between the two. And, of course, John Fetzer, who read all this literature, um, was very uh, keen on these kinds of parallels between the UFOs and the earlier theosophists. You know, I, I, you know, I've been a lover of books from the time I was a little girl. Read all the books about the saints. The, you know, any I was always drawn to anything that was spiritually divine. And when I hit Camp Chesterfield, it was amazing. And I, you know, I mean, it was in the early '90s, so, you know, I mean, it was pretty well known and et cetera. But that bookstore is is just very unique and i found a copy oh i know and it's like they have they okay so the ascended master books you were talking about the ascended masters and the saint germain teachings and there are these books there's 20 20 something of them i found the original copy and it was white with gold and oh wow i just i know most of them are green there's the discourses and all of the different teachings and this one was white with gold and i I, I when I found it, I thought, oh my goodness, this is just like the frequency of it was just amazing. And I had a young client who was 19, who had been through just horrific, uh, you know. I mean, you know, we we have we have wounded wounded healers that then become like amazing teachers later. And this young man was my teacher in so many ways. And um, but when I first started working with him, I could I would have to keep my eyes closed. He says, you can't look at me. He just had such a shame and, you know, terrible self-image. And by the third session, he's like, okay, you can open your eyes. And when he finished his sessions with me, I gave him that book. I, I was like, oh, wow. he, I mean, he just, you know, I mean, that bookstore is magical. And and the campus is magical. You you just walk through there and you can just feel the enlightenment. Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting place and a really unique group of uh, of people um, who are very committed to what they're doing. Um, and during the summertime, of course, uh, that's their high season. Um, the place is packed with spiritual seekers from around the country and probably around the world. It's uh, it is global. It is because yeah. <laughs> it's like you just think Camp Chesterfield, you know, in the middle of Indiana. It's like what? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. So. But but this man, like, so it didn't come from, well, we don't know if it came from his father, but um, but his mother, to, be, to have been drawn to the Seventh-day Adventists, you know, mm-hmm. she obviously was a seeker in her own way. Um, but this young man, to be so curious and and continuing to be in the world, that, like the normal world, you know, don't you just wonder, like, who he talked to about all this? I mean, it was probably such a, a gift for him to connect with the different people who were searching like him. Yeah, and he also was um, a, a very private person, and um, for business reasons, he also kept his, his metaphysical interests very quiet because he was afraid that um, southwest Michigan tends to be a, a fairly conservative place religiously, and he was afraid that if people knew that he was into this kind of stuff, uh, he would lose uh, audience members and advertisers. So he was very quiet about it, and it's interesting because a lot of people he worked with, a lot of his colleagues and his businesses, knew that he had these interest, interests but just didn't know how deep they went. 
And so he had to search out communities he felt uh, comfortable with in order to talk to him about these kinds of things. And I imagine the reason he kept going down to Camp Chesterfield, and he kept going, uh, he started in the 30s, and the last trip we know about was uh, in the early 1970s. So he found a very good community down there that he could connect with and, and talk to about these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the people that have been there on that campus have been there for years and years and years, and yep. you know they're they're spiritually adept, but then they develop their their practice, and you know um, it's just a it's a magical place, and I could see where he would feel totally uh, at home there. Yeah, and one of his his major projects um, that he started in the 1930s was uh, in order to connect with his father. Uh, he started to research his father's family genealogy, and this became tremendously important for him. Um, but this was, you know, way back before Ancestry.com or any of these, you know, um, online sources. So he actually had to go and seek out um, information from town halls and libraries and places around the world. And occasionally he would run into gaps where he just, you know, the information trail stopped. And so he would go down to Camp Chesterfield and consult the mediums uh, in order to give um, give him clues at, at places he should go or new sources of inf- information. And he believed that this helped him actually complete the genealogy going back several centuries. So Camp Chesterfield really uh, helped him in this kind of um, quest to complete his genealogies. And he did one for his father, and later he did one for his mother as well. And one of the most interesting things about this was that going back a couple of generations, there were no photographs for anybody. And so he had a number of spirit photos taken of relatives. And um, there was a medium at Camp Chesterfield who is adept at doing these spirit photographs of, of people who had gone on before. And then John Fetzer would take these photographs to an artist who would basically uh, turn them into line drawings. And a number of these line drawings uh, are published in his genealogies. Okay, so Brian, I have to ask you, did you know about any of this before you started writing this book? Well, um, I studied new religious movements in the Midwest, so I was aware of some of this. Um, I was aware of Camp Chesterfield, for example, and and the the... The, the, what, the concentration of spiritualists in this part of the country going all the way back to the 19th century. But one of the things the, the biography allowed me to do was to investigate these things in depth. So there were traditions like theosophy I was aware of that I really didn't know a whole lot about. But um, because of John Fetzer and because of his reading and because his library is still extant, it gave me the opportunity to go back and just read all this stuff. And it was just so much fun. So interesting. You know, there are these books, you know, they many of them have blue covers um, that were put out way back in the day. And, you know, I'm going to name a few names and you can, you know, jump into Alice mm-hmm. Bailey, um, uh, Blavatsky, you know. Yep. I, there were just so many. And um, I was just fortunate enough, my mother-in-law had a sister-in-law who, Frances Searcy, I'll never forget it, who had all these books in her library, and when she died, no one knew what to do with them. And my mother-in-law yep. said to me, you know, she's no longer my mother-in-law, but she was, and she said, uh-huh. these these seem like the things you talk about. <laughs> <laughs> So I inherited these books that were written so far ahead of anyone else, like, understanding, you know, like, you know, and then you you look at um, Florence Scovel Shin, who was a female metaphysician in the early 1900s, and no one would publish her book, The Game of Life, because she was a female metaphysician, and she self-published in the early 1900s. I mean, what woman, you know, like, really? And it's still, to this day, in every language all over the world. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and then there was this little tiny book, The Science of Happiness, that somehow found its way to me. And then they talked about, like, this was way before anyone else knew this stuff, like how when people were angry, the breath that would come out of them was brown and black. And the mm-hmm. breath that came out of people that were happy and heart-filled was, like, pink and white. And, you know, so, like, all of this is, like, back there, but we're just rediscovering it. Well, what's remarkable, too, is just how many of these ideas are now just part of our culture. They're out there. Um, 
I think if John Fetzer were living today, he wouldn't feel any um, uh, trepidation about talking about these ideas in public the way he did back in the 20th century. So it, it's really remarkable how a lot of these ideas um, have now just become part of the background, part of our our kind of normal spiritual life. Well, and his, okay, so John really felt like this whole, um, from what I've read, is that the consciousness movement was to lead us to spiritual empowerment and to take these paranormal insights and weave them into our own lives so that we can be better people and help the world. Like everything that he talked about was helping helping the world. So do you want to touch just a little bit on his bigger picture of how this plays out? Yeah, he always, uh, I, I, I categorize him as a New Ager um, because he called himself a New Ager long before the New Age movement came, you know, was, was named that in the 80s and 90s. And I think he got the idea primarily from Alice Bailey and the Arcane School because um, Alice Bailey would talk about the, the coming New Age uh, quite a bit. And her idea was that individual spiritual transformation would somehow reach a kind of critical mass and there would be a, a tipping point that would cause a, a global spiritual transformation. And this was an idea that uh, John Fetzer took to heart, and he really believes that you, the, the ultimate importance of, of individual spiritual transformation was not just for the individual, but because it was leading to something that was going to affect the community at large. So there was always this kind of social component to it. And unfortunately today, the New Age, when people talk about New Agers, um, it's almost a pejorative um, because they see it as kind of shallow and narcissistic. But for John Fetzer, there was always this component that it was, it was working for the betterment of community, and there always had to be an element of, of spiritual service to it. Mm-hmm. Which is why it worked for him so well. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and you know, I I I love this one part of one of the um, things that the publicist sent me. She said, you know, here are a few tenets, you know, the, of, of his teachings, and money is energy. He often said, yes. and I have, you know, when you look at our currency, you know, currency, energy, money, and you look, there's the pyramids, there's the the third eye. I mean, our money is very very spiritual. Most people don't even think about it. They just they just throw it at, you know, whatever they're paying for. But, I mean, our money really in the United States is really quite interesting, don't you think? Well, it's remarkable. And it's debated <laughs> whether the unfinished pyramid and the all-seeing eye is a Masonic symbol. Um, some people say yes, some people say no. But it is remarkable that this very kind of esoteric symbol winds up on a piece of paper that everybody basically has in their pocket. Um, so you kind of wonder about, you know, what was the original motivation for actually putting this on the currency? Um, it, 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 it lends to a lot of interesting speculation. So, yeah, and John Fetzer, he, he was immensely wealthy. He was By the time he died, he was one of the 400, uh, 400 wealthiest uh, Americans, according to Forbes magazine. But he himself lived an incredibly frugal uh, and... and, and um, um, what, uh, a, not an ostentatious lifestyle. Um, lived in a nice home, but it wasn't anything fancy. He didn't have, you know, private jets or chauffeur-driven limousines or anything like that, primarily because he really believed that his wealth, to mean anything, ultimately had to have some kind of mission behind it. It had to have some kind of spiritual mission. So it was always about the mission, not the money. And this fits in with his idea of, of money is energy, um, energy is only energy if it circulates, and it's the same thing with, with money. Mm-hmm. Money is a form of energy to do good in the world, but it only does good if it gets out in the world. And so right. the, hoarders, the, end of the hoarders, yeah, the hoarders that, you know, are holding on to it and it's not in circulation. Like, you know, I love the part about where um, I read that his approach was to serve first and then the money came back to him. He understood the dynamic mm-hmm. laws of prosperity. Prosperity, you you know, in the Course of Miracles, you know, which wasn't even around back then, but Course of Miracles, it says the cost of giving is receiving. And yeah. you know, there's been all kinds of Catherine Ponder, all the different people. You know, there's I I can name one after another, but but basically he understood 
and and look what he did by creating his foundation you know like his work continues and you know he's blessing all of us yeah near the end of his life in his 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 last two decades um in the 70s and 80s um he began to actually systematically liquidate his businesses um so his his media business the Fetzer Broadcasting Company and also he sold the Detroit Tigers and the point of this was to use this money as an endowment for what became the Fetzer Institute and he always envisioned the Fetzer Institute of, as having a 500-year mission uh, based on this endowment that would basically help to catalyze uh, the, the spiritual transformation of the globe. So he was really forward-looking. He was looking way down the road at um, how his money could still continue to be doing good in the world. Okay, this is an off-the-wall question for you, uh, Brian. Mm-hmm. When you were writing this, did you ever feel like he was right there with you? Well, no. I, I Unfortunately, um, I, I don't think I've ever had a real psychic experience. Um, I'm always open to it, um, but I don't think I, I did. Although, um, before we began the project, um, we went down to Camp Chesterfield and basically had a seance, and um, the spirit of John Fetzer was said to have appeared. And I'm happy to say that uh, he basically gave his approval for the book project. So um, hopefully that really was him. Uh, and uh, hopefully he really uh, is pleased with the way the book project came out. Well, how can he not be? It's a beautiful, beautiful um, gift to all of us. And, you know, it's so interesting because America is still so young, you know, mm-hmm. and for him to have been so tuned in at such a young age, you know, in in England, that's where a lot of the salons started, the seances started, and, you know, that was very normal. But for the United States, it was still kind of esoteric, like, what? You know, and, you know, we, and the people with the knowledge were very, you know, quiet. That's why you had to go to a Theosophical Society or something, you know, to find these teachings. They just weren't out there for the general public. And, I mean, I guess they were, but you had to find your way to them. But, yeah, um, I, yeah. anything you want to add to that? Well, the interesting thing is there's always been this kind of, um, I don't know, metaphysical or esoteric underground, um, and it's, it goes all the way back to the colonial period in, in, in America, in American history. And so it's always been there, but you're right. People had to work to basically contact it um, and bring it into their orbit. So, again, one of the remarkable things that's happened in the late 20th and early 21st century is just how much of this stuff. I, I, I hesitate to even call it esoteric anymore because it's so out there and so available. And, of course, a lot of this has to do with the Internet and the power of the Internet to get ideas out there. Um, but, yes, um, there has always been this current, but it, 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 it took a special seeker to basically find it. You know, the Internet really did not start until 1994. I mean, it was there a little bit before that, but it was really ni- 1994 before, you know, I mean, I had an email account before I even knew what it was. Someone said, oh, you need an email account. And I can remember in the late 90s, we started developing websites for spiritual people. And mm-hmm. we really hadn't, you know, we knew, but we didn't know. We still did not realize the full impact of it. And you look at it now, and it's so powerful. And can you imagine, can you imagine what John Fetzer would have been like if he had, like, had access to all of that? I mean, instead, he was a seeker, and it was the underground, basically, railroad, you know, of, of spirituality that he followed. Yeah. Well, I think he would have loved the Internet. He loved technological innovations. So I think he would have been a kid in a candy store if he had lived long enough to see the the full flowering of the Internet as we have it now. I mean, it's just amazing the the knowledge that's at our fingertips. Right, right. I know. I mean, the kids have grown up with it in their hand. You know, I can remember buying encyclopedias. You know, I'm in my 60s, Uh but I can remember buying encyclopedias and my my, uh, children's father was like, that's ridiculous how much money you spent on those. And I'm like, oh, no, it isn't. (laughs) Because we can research anything. I was always, always a seeker with books. I mean, oh, my goodness. You know, I mean, I 
my first job when I was eight, well, not my first job, but one of my first jobs was working in a bookstore. And back then, you know, you could tear the cover off and send the cover back to the publisher and you get full credit. Yeah. And everybody's like, why, why, why don't any of your books have covers on them? <laughs> like, because they're free, you know. Because and I read everything from Herman Hesse to you know, Psycho Cybernetics, and you know, Eric Byrne, the games, you know, all of it. I mean, we're so yeah. blessed. We're so blessed. Yeah. So, so getting back to John Fetzer. Okay, so uh-huh. his whole deal with business and science and spirituality. What can you share with us about how he blended all of this in in his mm-hmm. work and then helping us? Well, um, he, he believed that everything is, is spirit, and there's a great universal source out there that's basically emanating spirit. And since he was an engineer, he always thought about spirit using the metaphor of energy and circulating energies. Um, as a kid, uh, this is one of the things that fascinated him about radio, was that here you had this machine um, that could detect these invisible wavelengths out there and, and basically pull in voices and music and all sorts of great stuff. So this got him thinking um, that there might be more out there than just simply these kind of empirical energies. There might be subtle energies out there as well. And he was a, a early reader of... Uh, the works of Nikola Tesla, and so that absolutely fascinated him, the great uh, electrical kind of pioneer. And so he began thinking very early that there must be a connection between um, the, the energies that we can, we can see and measure and the subtle energies that must be out there. And so he always thought that science and spirituality were essentially the, the same, uh, two sides of the same coin, essentially. And he was very interested in, in, in having science kind of push the boundaries um, to basically prove the reality of spirit. And so one of the early things that the Fetzer Institute funded was research in, in parapsychology, um, things like clairvoyance and ESP and psychokinesis and things like that. So the, the whole idea there was that um, this was a kind of royal road to getting to a kind of spiritualized science. And this was tremendously important for him um, because it, 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 it would ultimately confirm his, his spiritual worldview, but he also felt that the only way the planet was going to achieve the global spiritual transformation he foresaw was if we did have a spiritualized science. That's quite interesting. Um, I mean, really, way ahead of his time. And Tesla, I mean, Tesla, you know, I mean, you know, we know all of his work and how ingenious it is and, and, you know, the solar, you know, things that are happening on the planet now. I mean, Tesla was just brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, and he also, um, he talked about, Tesla always talked about his intuition and the fact that he could actually visualize his various machines before he ever even built them. And he could test them in his mind, um, which is just incredible. And so John Fetzer also believed that, to some degree, he had not the same kind of intuition, but a, a powerful kind of intuition for business. And this he always thought of in psychic terms, that his intuition was a kind of form of ESP. And it helped him make good business decisions and surround himself with you know good people, loyal people. Um, so... It's interesting that this idea of intuition as ESP is something that John Fetzer really felt made him uh, a business success. I can believe that, though, because, you know, so much of of success in business is trusting your intuition mm-hmm. and aligning yourself vibrationally with people who are a match or yeah. have that same, you know, frequency and making the world a better place. I do have a question. I mean, I, I looked over everything. What did Fetzer think about Edgar Casey? Oh, he was he was fascinated by Edgar Casey. Um, he never met the man. Uh, Casey died, I think, in '45. Um, they could have met, but he never did. But he read um, just about all of Casey's published readings. But he was the two things he, John Fetzer was especially interested in were um, Edgar Cayce's readings on Atlantis, 
um, that whole side of things John Fetzer was just fascinated by. But also the the early kinds of holistic health and energy healing that uh, Edgar Cayce uh, basically brought through through his readings. And in fact, later wow. in life, um, the Fetzer Institute in the 70s uh, was funding parapsychology. And then in the 80s, um, it, it shifted focus and started looking at um, funding research into holistic health and the mind-body connection, but also uh, energy medicine, the idea that you could um, basically use the both um, empirical and subtle energies that the body gives off uh, and come up with technologies that could read that uh, in order to diagnose and treat disease. So one of the things that uh, John Fetzer did he had a he had a couple of heart attacks in his life, and, and during his second heart attack, he checked himself into the uh, ARE clinic in Arizona, mm-hmm. and that's the Association for Research and Enlightenment, um, the Edgar Casey Foundation, and put himself in the hands of uh, holistic healers there, and he forged a partnership with them uh, to basically research, and he hoped eventually it never got to this, unfortunately, but. Uh, he hoped to market uh, energy medicine devices. So um, Casey played a big part uh, in in John Fetzer's spiritual life. You know, it's fascinating because Casey believed in the wet cell battery. You know, a lot of, like, he knew that there were currencies in the body that were, like, off. And so, yep. I mean, and all of those readings, you know, you used to have to send away for the case files, now it's all digitalized. They've had people who have given donations, and now you just ask for something on a particular condition, and it's emailed to you. Can you imagine? Yeah, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. <laughs> well, one of the early things that John Fetzer wanted to do with the ARE clinic was to come up with an early computerized database of um, different holistic healing techniques, but specifically energy medicine techniques. So probably the digitized material that's online now um, had some kind of origin uh, going back to John Fetzer's kind of partnership with the ARE clinic back in the late 1980s. That's beautiful. That is just so beautiful. I mean, you know, I had my very first massage in 1980, and it was at the Edgar Casey Institute in Virginia Beach. And they had the, that's the original, and they had the hospital that was his hospital, and of course all of his massages are done with almond oil, you know, because he knew, Edgar Casey knew, he said if you eat eight raw almonds a day, you will never have cancer. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it was one of his things. And, you know, he just, uh, he understood, I mean, he was a photographer by day and then would go into that trance-like state and give complete medical diagnoses and I I'm I was originally a nurse and you know mm-hmm. drawn to um all of this other esoteric healing you know and I'm trained in a bunch of different things I'm not going to go into them it would take too long but but uh-huh. I've always respected you know traditional science um I'm a very scientific kind of girl but I totally walk in both worlds and I think that there's uh, I, I love that John Fetzer believed in science and believed in this whole other realm because, you know, it's it's a that's where the, the, the good things happen. It's like being open and honoring and respecting both. Yeah, and you might as well take, you know, take advantage of the resources out there, um, both in terms of biomedicine and in terms of alternative healing. And that was something right. that John Fetzer did. He was—he never abandoned biomedicine, and it kept him alive. Um, but he was always open to um, alternative healing as a way of, again, kind of, in this case, marrying medical science with spirituality. And, of course, today um, we have holistic health programs all over the country. Um, but Fetzer was a real pioneer in this field. So let's talk about karma, because apparently this man was a big believer in karma. So anything you want yep. to share on that? Well, um, he believed um, fervently in the idea of reincarnation. And uh, one of the things he did was uh, he was fascinated by the Ouija board. And he had a personal secretary, and they would work the Ouija board together for a variety of reasons, um, to make business decisions, uh, to work on the genealogy. But they also used it to basically trace uh, John Fetzer's past lives. 
And according to Fetzer, he basically traced a series of past lives all the way back to Atlantis. And the importance of this for him was that he believed that each one of these lives that he lived in the past um, had a certain karma, um, but was also oriented towards a certain mission, which was never quite achieved in these past lives. But all of them were leading up to his present life. And the wisdom and kind of insights that he garnered in these past lives would help him to finally uh, perfect the mission in this life. And, of course, that mission turned out to be the Fetzer Institute. So for him, um, the, his whole idea of, of karma, of past lives, was tremendously important for orienting his mission and also giving him the confidence that he could actually carry it off in this lifetime. Do you know um, anything you want to share, like all of the different explore, exploration, making contact with his dad? Did his dad ever deliver a particular message that just totally confirmed whatever is? I, I don't know. Like, did his dad ever give him something that was so such a guiding force through these mediums that he was like, oh, my goodness. So no wonder he was here, gone, and I'm living his legacy. Um, unfortunately, I, I'm not too sure because um, Fetzer basically, he talked about um, the, the uh, seances in which he encountered his father, but unfortunately he didn't actually record the details. So uh, it would be hard to believe that his father didn't relate to him um, a kind of uh, importance of John Fetzer's life, and that um, even though his father, who was also named John, left early, um, he was always there to basically help as a as a guide. Um, and so he he encountered his father through seances um, throughout his his time going to uh, Camp Chesterfield. So I'm not sure if there's a particular uh, bit of wisdom that he imparted, but just simply his presence and his availability, I think, was tremendously important for John Fetzer, who felt tremendously the loss of his father uh, at a very early age. Uh, I think Fetzer was either two or three years old, so he barely, barely knew his father. Right. And this completed his family. And, and, again, I think the genealogy projects also helped him to kind of fit himself fit John Fetzer himself into uh, a kind of procession of lives that were tending towards something, and some kind of evolution in consciousness. Um, so I think both his father and the genealogies were tremendously important for this. Well, it was confirmation. It was just total confirmation. And um, what a gift that he was able to receive this solace and, uh, and encouragement to continue the work that he's doing. Yes. So um, one of the things, you know, through the readings and um, everything that I read, is it showed that John totally trusted in the universe to provide the answers and knew that he would be, um, you know, listening to his own intuition and, you know, tapping into the source for all of the answers. And then that, you know, continued to, he never stopped questing. And, you know, to right. me, that's like really amazing that he was that vital and connected, you know, to life and, and carried it into his businesses. And, you know, anything you want to add on that, just how he, how he blended the science and spirituality and everything that he learned? Well, it's interesting because um, uh, in terms of his businesses, um, he he always trusted his intuition, but he also used other kind of psychic resources. Um, one of the things he, he always carried around was just a simple pendulum, um, which is just a weight on the end of a string. And whenever he had a particularly thorny question uh, or decision to make that he wasn't quite sure of, he would pull the pendulum out and ask a series of yes-no questions, and then depending on how it deflected, it would help him basically come to a decision. So he, he always employed uh, his, his uh, I mean, psychic means in making business decisions. You know, I've studied with some of the best dowsers in the country. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, you go to the dowsing, I've never been, but, you know, from what I understand, you go to these dowsing conferences and there's farmers and then yep. there's the people doing it, you know, for, and it, you know, throughout history, it has worked. And, 
you know, I uh, I teach dowsing and teach, you know, using the pendulum. And yeah. um, there's just the body doesn't lie, you know. It's it's really remarkable. You know, just like kinesiology and muscle testing. And we mm-hmm. have so many different ways of confirming and validating. And But, you know, I mean, can you imagine this successful media mogul, you know, carrying around this pendulum in his pocket? It's, like, so amazing. Well, there's a there's a wonderful story about that. That um, when he was the owner of the De- Detroit Tigers uh, baseball team, um, they had a very uh, talented pitcher, a guy named uh, Mark the Bird Fidrich. And Fidrich was very interesting because he had this very unorthodox pitching style. And he would do things like talk to the baseball, and he had all sorts of interesting rituals before he pitched. And I guess at a certain point, um, he went into a pitching slump, and part of it had to do with the fact that the sports writers were making fun of him for all the little things he did uh, before he pitched. And so Fetzer brought him into his office, uh, and they pulled out the pendulum. And um, the idea here wasn't to answer any question, but to convince Fidrich that the mind had power over matter, and that, in fact, his, his, his pitching routine as unorthodox and strange as it might seem, was really him exercising his power of mind over matter. And Fitrit said that uh, they made the the pendulum move, and for him that was a a powerful lesson. So he went back to the pitching mound, and uh, his pitching picked up. So it's an an interesting story of how... um, you know, John Fetzer basically employed this this particular kind of uh, psychic means to help uh, help one of his star pitchers. Well, you can literally take that pendulum and clear people's thoughts. You can clear the energy of a location. Mm-hmm. I mean, dowsing is very powerful. I mean, a lot of people just think it's a yes and no, but oh, it's so much more than that. Well, one of the earliest uh, um, times that John Fetzer came into contact with dowsing was. Back in the early 1950s, uh, he and his wife bought a, a parcel of property outside of Tucson, Arizona. And the idea was that they were going to build a, a vacation home there. Um, and so they brought in a hydrologist to tell him, well, where should we drill to get water? And the hydrologist said, well, there's no water out here. There's just no way you're going to be able to dig a well. And so at that point, John Fetzer brought in a couple of old-fashioned dowsers, guys with divining mm-hmm. rods. And they said, right. okay, if you drill here at a certain, I forget exactly what the depth was, it's like 200 feet or something, then you'll have unlimited water. And so John Fetzer got a welder a driller to come out. And again, the driller basically said, oh, you're wasting your money. I don't want to you know, waste your money. And, and Fetzer said, no, go ahead and do it. And so they got about 190 feet down, and the, the well driller called Fetzer and said, again, let's stop this. This is a waste of money. We haven't reached anything. And Fetzer said, go on. And they hit 200 feet, and up comes a gusher of water, and uh, they've had water in the property ever since. I'm telling you. I mean, the dowser that I studied with, he is he's a very odd duck, and he admits it. But he taught us and I've used his techniques. You know, mm-hmm. he taught us literally how to clear whole areas. Like if there's an area where a lot of car accidents happen, he said that it's, you know, it's a vortex of negativity. And so you can actually clear it, you know. And, you know, and I've seen people go a little overboard with it, checking every item on the menu, like should I eat this, should I eat that, is this clothing good for me, that. I mean, I've seen people obsessed with it. You know, but I, I always teach, you use that pendulum, until you don't need it. Yeah. And some people, you know, may need it forever, but, you know, there's even a way to ask the body after you've developed it to show me a yes or a no, and the body will lean forward for a yes and lean back for a no. You know, I mean, it's it's all energy field um, and trusting the answers, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, going the extra mile. So, um, so okay, I want to talk about one more thing, and then let's talk about how we find the book and any work that the foundation is doing. Um so what I like that Fetzer, um, you know, he was a believer in oneness, and he was a big believer in the golden rule. And from what I understand, he sought the good in all, refrained from gossip or unkind words, and treated his employees with love and regard, dealt in good faith, and was a positive light wherever he went. So anything you want to add to that? It just feels like this man was a man of integrity, 
he, no matter how successful he became, he was salt of the earth. I think, yeah, I think that's right. I think the the word that really sums him up is integrity. Um, he had a very strong view of how the universe was put together, and uh, he employed that knowledge in his everyday life, his personal life, his business life, and it all boiled down to this idea that the essential energy out there is essentially love. And so if you keep focusing on that, then you'll be successful and, and have good relationships, et cetera, um, throughout your life. And so I think that's that's the important thing about John Fetzer. So tell us about how to find the book. And, and I agree with everything you just said, by the way. And he was a big believer in service. You know, I just want to, you know, add that before we, you know, uh, wrap things up. He was a big believer in service, and his whole thing was, you know, it may be not be that you're leaving a legacy financially, but you're leaving a legacy by your good works, like a being right. of service and supporting the good that is available to all of us and helping others, um, you know, so that others can enjoy and prosper in the future. So um, I, I just love that he understood the whole idea of service and all of the projects that he's funded and, you know, taking this information that, you know, people were like, you know, what is that old blah, 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 and he made it real. Yes, yeah. Yeah, all right. So, Brian, how do people find the book? And um, tell us anything about In the Works with the Foundation or anything else that you feel would be helpful for our listeners. Um. Yeah, uh, the book is available now on Amazon.com and uh, BarnesandNoble.com and other online booksellers. And it's available as a hardback and also as a Kindle edition or ebook. And um, a couple of websites that people might be interested in are um, InfinitePotential.com. Uh, um, one of the things that uh, John Fetzer did before he died was he set up something called the Fetzer Memorial Trust. Uh, which is designed to um, basically perpetuate his legacy. And they also fund some really interesting kind of cutting-edge science. And so if people are interested in learning more about that, go to infinitepotential.com. And there as well, you can download a free PDF of the preface in the first chapter of the book. And then if you're interested in uh, what the Fetzer Institute is um, doing now, uh, you can go to fetzer.org. And... They're funding all sorts of interesting projects these days, um, primarily to promote love and forgiveness uh, around the world. So they take a, a kind of spiritual approach and, and um, fund programs that are interested in kind of developing people's spirituality throughout the life cycle, uh, from children to seniors. And then uh, one of the latest projects they're doing, which is very interesting, is, is um, uh, looking at the spiritual roots of democracy. Um, like a lot of us, they're very concerned about the, uh, the divisions in the country today. And uh, they're hoping that through the, this program, um, to get people together to talk about the spiritual roots of democracy, that they can help to bridge the kind of political divides, and so people start talking to each other instead of shouting at each other. So I think this is a tremendously important project that hopefully will have uh, a beneficial effect on, on the country at large. Oh, we need this more than ever now, don't we? I mean, it's we just do. fascinating times, and um, you know, and it's it's hard, you know, to remember. Let's rephrase that. It's not hard, but it can be challenging sometimes to remember that all is in divine order and divine time. And um, but, you know, we we have the basic teachings, you know, of Christianity, and you know, where two or more are gathered. You know, you you know, there I am as well, and anything that I do, you can do as well. And you know, this empowerment that you know um, he believed in. You know, it's it's like you know, just be together and go back to the roots and understand that there's just so much more than we understand. So um, I just love that he is continuing to support this this research and um, and making the world a better place. Yes. Okay, final words. You have like anything else you want to add from this journey that you've had with, you know, writing about John Fetzer and exploring? Anything else you want to add, Brian? Well, I, one last thing I'd like to add that you know personally I've learned from this is that um, John Fetzer never stopped seeking, 
even into his 70s and into his 80s, he was uh, reading and practicing new things and trying out new things. And I think this is tremendously important for everybody, that to keep yourself young, you need to keep yourself curious and always seeking. So that's an important lesson I learned from doing this book. That's why Spirit Seeker is Spirit Seeker. It was originally going to be Spirit Quest, and then that was taken. And then when I went back, someone said, what about Spirit Seeker? And then I had the numerology checked and everything else, and it was like, that's it. That is it. Always be a seeker because then you're never failing. You're always learning. So, Brian, thank you so much for um, bringing this work to all of us, and thank you so much for being my guest tonight. And um, remember, this is a podcast. I mean, it's over. You can listen to it any hour of the day or night. Share the podcast with friends, relatives that can be inspired as well. And, Brian, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, All right. Good night, everyone. We'll be back next week, and have a fabulous week, and continue to seek. That's the magic of life. Okay. Thank you so much, Brian. All right. Good night, everyone.